Good morning and welcome along to another RTE Rugby podcast. We are midway through week three of the Six Nations, or round three, Ireland taking on Italy in Rome this Saturday. Wales against England, we hope, is going to be taking place as well this weekend. And Italy and Bernard Jackman, that's probably where we're going to start this week because there's so much going on. The, the state of play is kind of constantly changing. And it's probably a good place to start because it's probably the, the story of the week. But at the time of recording this, so this is Wednesday morning right now. Who knows when people are listening to this, things might have changed. But what we know at the moment is that at some stage today, on Wednesday, the Welsh Rugby Professional Rugby Board, that's made up of representatives from the WRU, the the very the four regions and independent voters they're going to meet and then the professional rugby board are going to sit down with every professional rugby player in Wales to try trash out a deal and get this game at the weekend played at the Principality Stadium because it's you know it is worth upwards of nine ten million pounds to the Welsh Rugby Union they obviously desperately wanted to go ahead but more importantly as well the players want the game to go ahead they don't want to be striking but. Warren Gatland, as he said yesterday, he's hopeful it'll go ahead. But, you know, this threat of a strike from the players is very, very real. And Birch, that's where we're going to start because we don't know where things are going to be later on today. But what we do know is the threat of strike seems definitely real and and something has to be done within the next day or so so we can get this game going ahead. Yeah, I'm after hearing that potentially it's more likely that the... the the game against France could be off. Um, so that's the latest that, you know, uh, there's no way they're going to get a deal done uh, today. A six year, yeah, like a six-year yeah, deal is yeah. what they're ultimately... Yeah, and in fair, fairness, I think, you know, the, the CEO has walked. So the, the CEO, Steve Phillips, who was driving this, has stepped away. So um, effectively, you're handing a new CEO a deal that's that's going to last six years. And and um, is that is that prudent? So... Um, but what the players are, I think, are saying is, even if they get an agreement today, that won't be contractually um, bound. It'll be a, it'll be a verbal agreement. Yeah. Um, so my understanding is that they also the Wales England game is is the biggest show in town. Um, so they may agree to play that game, and if they don't get what they need over the course of the next three or four weeks, then the French game could come under under threat. But look, at it, it's just another week where rugby isn't uh, painting itself in a in a good light, but from a from a player point of view, I think it's it's horrendous. I mean, um, they knew this contract, this agreement was running out in June, and they've allowed it, you know, drift into into late February. Um, and to be honest, the only people in suits, uh, for to run this late are the are the Blazers. You know, um, the players are the ones; they're the pawns. Um, we saw Jack Dixon get injured last weekend in um in in, in the RDS. Dimitri Arhib. Had who's also off contract, um, who spent ten years playing his professional rugby in Wales between the Ospreys and Cardiff, uh, had a serious Achilles in Achilles tendon injury, had an operation, so he's now out of contract with a long term injury. It's exactly the fear that players had. Now, luckily, from a regional point of view, there's no game this weekend, so I understand that they're being very careful. The training, contact training, is is very limited, so they're trying to keep themselves safe. Um, but the international players obviously have a massive game, and um, while there's less of them under off contract in June, they, they're they the ones who have the power. They're the ones who have the strength. And to be honest, I think to be critical of the Welsh players, they haven't been unified uh, enough. They've been pushed into corners in the past and just taken it. Um, and I hope they're unified, you know, today over the next couple of weeks because 
this this deal the or the way it was laid out didn't make sense to any athlete of any description uh, in any sport because you know a capabilities clause which basically means you can be sacked if you don't play well um and we all know being uh someone's form is down to someone's perception you know it, it's very difficult to to argue um and also who's to say that they wouldn't use that for financial reasons to try and save money or use money elsewhere there's a loan clause where you can be moved anywhere um the 60 cap rule is uh, is a barrier to, to to free trade effectively, and then they're cutting people's contracts. Um, not just not just the twenty percent. It's effectively in some places it's fifty sixty percent because they've already taken COVID cuts, and effectively this is just uh, the seventy three players I think off contract in June. Those renegotiations are 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 going to be very very strongly. Salaries are going to go down, but the plan is for next year. Is is to is to cut obviously the people coming off contract again. So, um, and from an Irish point of view, um, obviously from a Welsh point of view, it's terrible. But from an Irish point of view, we're realistically looking at a URC for the next six years that has the four Irish teams, um, Glasgow, Edinburgh, and three three South African teams, and and Benetton who are competitive because the Welsh, the Welsh have actually said for six week six years, it's about it's not about rugby ambition, it's about um keeping the doors open. So um, it's very messy. It is and. Keats, I'm gonna put you into the kind of the ex players mind here where okay, we're well, what coming up towards the end of February, if you cast your mind back to, to when you were playing, how how long in advance, at what point in the season are you generally getting the plans in place of okay, I'm either talking to we'll say Monster, for example, about signing a new contract, or I'm finding out maybe there isn't a contract and I start looking elsewhere and I start getting my house in order. At what stage in the season are those things generally happening in comparison to now where you have the the players of the four regions who are in contract years who ultimately don't know if there's a contract offer even on the table yet? Well, firstly, like speaking as a past player, it's great that we have the RPI who, who represent um, the, the Irish players and they have such a good relationship with the RFU. I think without without that's we without the players having such a strong union, um, I I I don't think Ireland would be in such a good place rugby wise. So I just want to say that because they represent us and they do such a good job. But in terms of a contract, um, they actually do it at different times, like around like your your top the top or the top players that they really want to keep. It's usually RFU. They're usually done around September. Uh, October, then they go down the line around um, October, November, the next line of players. And But mainly a lot of the players are done by early January. I remember one year um, I, 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 uh, with Razzie, I was playing, I started playing well and I don't know if they wanted to keep me, keep me or not, but I was playing really well. And then um, my wife uh, got pregnant Right, and this was one of the things that we had to do. I had to keep it secret because you just never know that player. Uh, they they can use that against you if they know that you're pregnant with with uh, you're having a kid coming on. Um, that they go okay. Well, he's not really going to want to move anywhere. He's going to want to stay at home. So I remember me and my wife kept that secret for a while. Then I signed a contract. Um, probably have been late March, which is actually very late for signing contracts, as, as we discussed there. And then, uh, and then signed the contract, and then around a week later, I announced that we were pregnant. And Razzie goes, "Oh, congratulations! How far along? Like when's due?" I was like, 
September. And then he kind of looked at me. So he knew that like we were four months along <laughs> already. So he kind of knew that we were, we were keeping that secret. So there is like little mind games, but the earlier, the better you want, you, you want to tie up that contract so you can concentrate on something. You, you just want to concentrate on your rugby. You don't, you don't want to have that deliberation coming into February, March. Am I, if I play here, get injured, I won't, I won't be picked up. Um, and that was one of the reasons I actually ended up signing for, for Benetton. They came in um, around late October, Munster, where they didn't know whether they wanted to keep me or not. Um, my agent was saying that France won't probably look for signings for around, they're, they're, they're quite late for signing players around February, March. And I had a, a kid, a, a kid, a daughter at the time, and I was like, I want, a, I want a bit of security. And I just said, yeah, I'm just going to take that because I wanted the security of my next two years playing rugby. Yeah, that's a good point. Hey, moving back to the, the situation at hand then, Birch. So, like, as you kind of probably hinted, regardless of what happens here, if a deal does get signed and they, they come to terms, ultimately for the next few years, the Welsh regions probably aren't going to be massively competitive, never mind when it comes to Champions Cup, but even at URC level as well. So you do get the feeling no matter what happens this week, even if the game does get played and there's, in terms of short term anyway, a, a happy ending to it all, that things are probably going to get worse in Welsh rugby before they actually get better for, you know, across the next five to ten years. Yeah, so I think that's the biggest, um, uh, I suppose, uh, one of the biggest gripes of the players is that for the last five or six months, they've been told, look, at there's going to be a big reset. You know, we're looking at a six-year plan to stabilise Welsh rugby. And then, and they understand there's going to be pay cuts, you know, because there's pay cuts across the, the board in professional rugby. Um, and the market opportunities are, are way more limited now than before because France have less foreign players, English clubs, um, salary cap, plus the fact that they've absorbed some of the Worcester and, and um, Wasp players. There's not many opportunities for them. So, but what's killing them is they're taking a pay cut and then they want another pay cut effectively because it's basically 80% fixed, 20% variable. So, and the variable is built on performance clauses. So I think the initial clause was you have to start 18 games. That's actually quite hard to start 18 games in yeah. a season. And There's again, 18, 18 regular season games yeah. in the URC. Yeah, exactly. And again, selection isn't always in your control. So you can be fit and informed, um, uh, but for financial. Reasons. Like I remember a fella in sale um, who definitely wasn't getting picked because if he played one more game, he was getting a bonus uh, for the last, last five games. You know, the clubs can, I'm not saying clubs are doing it on purpose or whatever, but that, can, that, that has happened in the past. I saw it in France as well, um, where if a player played another game, their option for another year became valid and, and the president didn't want um didn't want to have him him on board so he wasn't picked. So um those performance things and also some of those performance clauses are around Welsh teams making top four and stuff, you know. Yeah. So the players know that the the regions and the, the WRU understand they're gonna have smaller squads. It's next to impossible they're gonna be performing better than they are this year with less resource. And yes, that's the only way they can make up some of the variables. So um, it's a real mess, but they're so badly organized. I mean, apparently the PRB, so there's a big meeting today. Everyone knew this meeting was happening today because every single player in Wales whose contract is supposed to go to it and they haven't been given a time. You know, like it's just, the, the, you know, and obviously it's not the distance. I mean, Scarlet's to Cardiff, where I think the meeting's going to be, it's probably an hour and a half, but just good manners to say, right, at three o'clock on, on Wednesday, we're all going to get into a room and we're going to trash it out. And this has been the problem is, is that it's been very difficult for players to get 
in front of people who are making decisions. So the PRB, um, they have their regional contacts, but they don't have the PRB as a whole. The, the players' union don't have a representative on the PRB. They can't get in front of the WRU because they, they're saying, look, we're in negotiation with the PRB. And they're getting all their information drip-fed to them. Um, and in, fair, in fairness, they're just getting bad news, bad news, bad news. So it's uh, it's horrific. So hopefully there's some kind of impasse today. I think I think now the players would say, look, let's have the status quo for a year and let's negotiate this properly. Um, but I think the WRU seem to be keen to lock them down now for six years. And they've already gone through a lot of negative PR for other issues outside of, of, of funding. Um, but they've, they probably want to get this done and they probably feel it's the time to get it done. So um, I would worry for, I would worry from a player point of view around how, how, how they're going to be uh, remunerated, but um, remunerated, but I, I just, I don't think it's going to affect the England Wales game. I, I think the public as well, there's a lot of apathy in the public in Wales. So the players are, are sensitive to that. Um, and they would be afraid that losing the nine million pounds that they would lose this Saturday um, will actually be used against them, you know, in a week's time as a reason for less funding. Yeah, and like I'm kind of putting two and two together in my head here as well, Keith. But like you do get the feeling that the general sense seems to be that the majority of the public are fully behind the players as opposed to the the WRU and all of this. And you would probably imagine if they if they do make a stand and, and show up and play against England at the, the Principality Stadium on Saturday afternoon, that there would be an enormous showing of support from a packed house in Cardiff that would probably actually end up, probably put even more pressure on the, the Welsh Rugby Union. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think with this game going ahead, it's it's um, I know they want to strike, but they, they kind of said that they're going to go and strike last week. I think they wanted to give the Welsh Rugby Union time that, that week off and there was no international and this week time to, to kind of resolve this because I don't think the players do want, they don't want to not play this game. I think everyone wants this game to go ahead and as Bert said there, that, that money will be, if they don't play that game, that's that's a lot of money that can be actually used against them. But yeah, beware the wounded the wounded animal. Like if, if this match goes ahead, you wouldn't be surprised if if the Welsh players do end up turn uh, turning, it, uh, turning England over. But I think they just look across the water they see Ireland, who have similar population, uh, sim- four provinces, similar, similar demograph, and they just see how well the, the RFU are, are running things. And I say there's just a bit of, they look across there and they see that they're, they're quite envious. I went to the Munster Ospreys match here night with my nephew, and my nephew was like, oh, Ospreys, brilliant. Like, that's always a big derby. And I was like, mm, it used to be when I was playing uh, a few years ago. And... Uh, it's just yeah. It's just a shame to see to see this all happening because um, it, well, the Welsh have a big part to play in the URC, and it would be great if they got back to where they were. I'm looking for. I'm just looking forward to take it back to Keith's negotiation skills. So I'm looking forward to Keith's webinar on on the art of negotiation um, on, on contracts. I'm just thinking as well. So when rugby went professional first. I remember the first year in Connacht, um, they were all done in March. Um, in fairness, we didn't know what was really happening, but the CEO put up a list of people to come in on Monday morning at nine o'clock all the way through to Wednesday, right? And he put it up on the notice board, but it wasn't done alphabetically. It was pretty clear. Eric Elwood was like at nine o'clock on Monday morning and then, <laughs> uh, you know, the next best player all the way through. And then the poor lads on a Wednesday, I was probably Tuesday at about seven o'clock. I just barely, barely hung in there, but it wasn't very, uh, very professional. And then Pat Lamb had a system. I don't know if you had it when you had it, if you worked on him, Keats, but in Bristol, he basically said, look at, 
um, at any time, any player can come up to me and say, where am I contract-wise? And use a traffic light system. So you say, green, you know, I want to keep you. Amber, I'm not sure, or red at the moment, you're out the door. Um, so, you know, at least players could kind of get a feel for where they're at without going through their agent or maybe having a massive meeting with them. Um, and things could change, obviously. It didn't mean you had the contract, but it was just an interesting way of, of, of giving players um certainty or or, or or not certainty feedback around where they were in the pecking order. Hmm. I when it comes to, to Warren Gatland, um there, there's kind of two two sides to it that I, I'm kind of curious to know. Number one, when when he came back in in December, how much did he know about the the mess that the the mess of a situation he was walking back into, not just in terms of the you know in terms of results like the opening rounds of the Six Nations, but all the stuff we've been talking about now. But but secondly as well, if you're if you're one of those players who your entire future is completely uncertain, you don't know you're gonna have a contract next season, and you're a Welsh international as well in some cases as well. Um and you see there's probably a decent payout given to your former head coach who's been sacked in December and there is a pretty hefty, well publicized contract given to to one of the game's most famous coaches to to come back in meanwhile you're sitting in the changing room working under a coach and you ultimately don't know are you going to have a contract next season and how much of that is going to be based on uh performance targets that ultimately you really have no hope of actually reaching and the i suppose the the difficulty that that might present yeah i think i think warren probably thought it would be easier to get a reaction i think certainly he'll have been shocked by the first two games um and uh, the poor performances, and that's going to make it very difficult for him because I think he needed to get a, a quick win. You know, if they were to be poor again this weekend against England, then he's going to have to probably cut loose a lot of the older players. We're not sure that the younger players are in Wales, certainly over, from under-20s levels over the last couple of years. We haven't seen some some really good crops. Um, Did he know there was a funding crisis? I'd say he did. I don't think he probably thought it would get as bad. Did he know there was going to be the... The off-field issues with sexism, misogyny, etc. Probably not. Um, did he know he would lose his CEO? Definitely not. So, you know, he also tried to bring Rob Howdy back. He wasn't allowed. So he, he hasn't been able to make the probably the decisions he made. Now, having said that, he does understand that the regional system is is deeply flawed and the funny model is poor from his time there up to far as 2019. But um, yeah, like when you think and look, there's definitely players are annoyed because you know, administrators aren't taking any any hits. Um, the, the committee men aren't taking any hits. Uh, someone sent me uh, a job advertisement there for um, a committee were hiring a, a PA or, or something like that to basically book the VIP lounges and the travel and stuff, which is, you know, uh, pretty damning when, when players are being told there's no extra cash. Um, and obviously the changing coach cost them over a million, they reckon. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of inconsistencies in terms it seems the players are the only ones who are being asked to to take a, a hit and um it's it's just not it's just adding to the fuel I suppose. Yeah. Final thoughts in then if this is to go ahead. The the flip side is it's been a very uncertain week for, for England as well, obviously preparing for a game, not really knowing what to expect this Saturday. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure Borthwick has still said, "Listen, we we go on as business as if this game is ahead to 
Um, but yeah, there is that, that uncertainty. And even people traveling to the game, they don't know whether to go or not. But I, I, I think this game will go ahead. I, as I said, the players wanted to go ahead. It costs too much to the union. And then the players know if, if the union are affected by 10 million, it's probably going to have a knock-on effect on them. But I think it, was, I think it, it is needed. The players needed to take a stance. They needed to take back control because it, all, all, all what's been said from, from Jack Dix and even Jamie Roberts during the night, it's, it's unfair. On It's not just the players. It's their families. It's their, their children. So I hope it does get resolved. Um, as I said, we don't think it's going to be resolved this week, but hopefully those conversations that, that are happening today, they... they um, to provide fruitful negotiations that the, the, it will be resolved. But I say it will just be a verbal contract, as, as Bert said, this week, and just to try and get the game going ahead. But it needs to get resolved because it's unfair on everyone. Yeah, even just to get into a, a holding pattern for the weekend. Um, But yeah, fingers crossed that goes ahead. That's the late game on Saturday. We'll move to Italy against Ireland now. That's the, the 2.15 kickoff on Saturday afternoon. Um, Some selection calls to be made. Uh, which is kind of setting things up interestingly enough. Number one, anyway, we have, it seems there's there's definitely a bit of doubt over Johnny Sexton. He didn't train yesterday. Um, Reading between the tea leaves, it, it feels like, it feels like he's probably not going to be around for this weekend if he wasn't training yesterday. Um, Birch, is that automatically Ross Byrne is starting number 10 this, this Saturday if Johnny Sexton isn't around? No debate. Yeah, look, Johnny won't be there. Um, so Ross Byrne will will start, and I presume Crowley will be on the bench with Carby just being brought back in to to show him he's still very much part of it. And in fairness, I thought he was very good on Friday night. Mm. Um, yeah, regardless of Johnny being fit or not, I think this is not this is not this is a game that Ross Byrne should have started anyway, and and also give Crowley some some game time. Um, if not Carberry, uh, or, or maybe both on the bench if if he wants to be, you know, um, I suppose. Really experimental and 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 show Carby that he's, he's still very much part of it. But uh, yeah, Ross deserves to start. He's been good, good off the bench against Cardiff to help us get a bonus point, um, and had a significant role to play against France. And and that was a you know a high quality test match. So, um, yeah, I I don't think we need to worry about that. I don't think there's going to be wholesale changes though. Um, yeah, I think they will try and get some continuity. It's a follow week next week again, so you don't really need to rest players, um, and. We're in a great position to go and try and win this now. So, um, and you'll have seen how France struggled against Italy first up, and um, you know Italy were quite poor against England when the game was structured, but when it became unstructured, I thought they were they were decent. So, um, far we look to keep momentum and just you know a couple of injury enforced replacements maybe obviously with Burn being out etc. But um, it'll be a strong Irish team I think. Yeah, and on Ross Burn then Keith. So, if it does come to pass like it looks like it is that he'll probably be starting this weekend it's like it's it, it would be a first six nations start for him his only two his two other starts in an irish jersey were that that game against england at twickenham pre-2019 world cup which was just i mean it was it was a hiding to nothing really given that the week of training they had had in in portugal leading up to that game and then the second one was again at twickenham against england in the autumn nations cup of 2020 when the team just weren't really in a good place. You know, they were still really working through things. So his two experiences of, of getting a start in an Irish jersey haven't really gone well. And they've been in, in Irish teams that have really been struggling at the time. So it's a great opportunity for him this weekend if he can come in and, 
and take the reins in a game that Ireland will be expected to win. I know we've we've spoken about how Italy have, have improved, obviously, in the last year or so, but Ireland will still be expected to win. They're a team in form, and he's played well over the last couple of weeks. So it's a it's setting things up as a very nice opportunity for him. Yeah, we're number one in the world. We're expected to beat every team now. So, of course, when we're going over to Italy, like we're... We're expected to win, and I, uh, there's a there's an air of confidence. And I think the players are actually embracing this uh, number one tag at the moment. They're, um, everyone is saying, "Oh, we prefer to be the underdogs," but I think they're actually they're going into matches now. Like even the the match there last week against uh, or two weeks ago against France was the only team that they hadn't beaten, and it was like they they grabbed that by the by the horns. Like this is the only team we haven't beaten in the world. Let's go and beat them, and they just keep setting targets for themselves. But yeah. Back to Ross Byrne, it, it's a great opportunity for him. I, I got my first Six Nations um, start um, over in Italy, and it's 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 actually a, it's an unbelievable venue in Stadio Olimpico. Um, and the Italians, they have this unbelievable confidence, obviously, uh, over there playing over them. Like, they have this unbelievable confidence about them. Like, they can actually beat any team. Like, um, like they, as I said, they, they ran France close, but they would have gone into that match fully expecting they, they can win. Um, they they love big challenges. They love coming up against big teams because they know that they might just cause an upset, and they they kind of have that mentality. They have nothing to lose, and and they are they're they're, they're definitely a team on the rise. Karen Crowley has has done a really good job with them. Um, you know you know Crowley well, so like you would have worked with him at at Benetton, obviously. What tell us about him? What sort of a coach is he? What what did you learn from him? How did you find working under him? I, I, he's, a, he's a gentleman like a lot of the players loved working under him like he's he treats the players very well treats with respect lets you have your voice he's not too much into detail uh, he wouldn't I think he kind of realised the Italians they they don't like detail they don't really like being told what to do and as Bert just said there when they played against England they, they struggled with structure yeah. but Kieran would, would embrace that like that having a go mentality like and that's why they are so good in that the, the 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 unstructured and the ball is free and loose. It's almost like they don't know what they're going to do. So how are the opposition going <laughs> to going to know? And uh, they've just got a few freakish athletes. Like they in the gym over there, they were they were lifting some amount of weights. Um, so strong. In their, every gym session was nearly an hour long, and they try and hit every single muscle group every day, which I wasn't used to. I I I'm putting on a good bit of size over there. Uh, but they're they're serious athletes, and that's the way they like to play. Just with that freedom of don't, don't give me too much to think about. And I kind of Kieran has kind of realized that, and he just lets them play. He's put a bit of structure on them, but mainly it's just just play and use your skills and your abilities. And Bert, if you're if you're Kieran Crowley trying to devise a plan of you know knocking over the the world number one team, obviously it's going to be a an enormous ask and it would be a huge shock if they were to do so. But just if you're a coach looking at Ireland and trying to pick apart, what's the way you go about trying to trying to break them down or try find holes in the game? What would you say that would be? Yeah, look, I think it has to be make the game as unstructured as possible. I'm not saying that's a weakness for Ireland um, because generally they're, from an attacking point of view, they're very comfortable in, in that. But probably try and test them from a defensive point of view in that. So if you look at France, you know, France obviously scored from that broken broken field or broken play try for um for Penno. Uh, and that's the type of possession they love, but they're actually very, very structured in, in terms of their 
how they play, um, and it's just not as effective at the moment without Dante um, from a tactical point of view. But in their kicking game, they're very, very structured. Wales as well under Gatland. Uh, and in fairness, they've started to tighten up a little bit under Pivak because of pressure. Um, so this is probably the first team we've played. Um, and we will face this against Scotland as well, where you're playing against an Italian and a Scottish team who are very, very good and dangerous in that broken field type play. So I suppose Crowley needs to make um, make that happen as often as possible um, and be loose and throw offloads and, um, you know, uh, be unorthodox in terms of how they attack and, and play the blind side and look for those little grubber kicks through and, and chips over the top. He said, just break it up, break it up. Um, and hope Ireland are, are a little bit overconfident or a little bit off in terms of energy and, and exploit that. Um, but I think if they, they, you can't, there's no way you can say as a coach, um, you know, Italy playing a structured game plan which goes against kind of how they play anyway would would help them. And you can't say they're going to overpower Ireland because they won't. Um, and you can't say they're going to be better at set because I don't think they will be. But if the game becomes very loose and very frantic, that's where they have a chance, I think. Yeah. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be surprised if no one caring early on, there'd be like a hit up the middle, then just the nine with a little chip over, over the middle of the rook, just to try and cause that like a bounce of a ball, get 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 a nice bounce of a ball, and they'll have their two wingers coming in uh, and looking up for those scraps. And if they do score early on, it will just get their mojo up and they'll be flying. But if, if Ireland come out early on and, and blitz them in the first 20 minutes, it could be a long day for them. But if they get there, if they get into the game early, get an early try, like it could be a, it could be a very tough tussle uh, to get the win in the end. Keats, you mentioned like scrum half throwing in a little chip over the top there uh, a second ago, and and half back has been a major issue in the in the first two games for Italy. Like it's it's undeniable the the struggles they've had there. Now it does look like Parla Garbisi is going to be back. Uh, played in the top fourteen at the weekend and would probably come straight back into the into the starting side. But is the issue really as that is it been more so at scrum half than out half over those couple of games for Italy? Yeah, so we kind of just discussed there trying to play unstructured and think when you're nine and a ten, trying to play unstructured, like you're 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 nine and ten want to try and control a game. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's a contradiction in and of itself. Yeah. We're trying to play unstructured. Yeah. Exactly. You know? Exactly. And that's what I'm saying. Like, and everyone's like going, "Oh, look at the you're you're looking at. They got problems at nine and ten trying to control the but." The, the Italians want to play unstructured so that's exactly what you're saying there it's a bit of a contradiction so to to look at them who are trying to probably keep up the place keep it unstructured get the ball to their to their to their to their line breakers like Capuzzo it's like trying to get him with the ball in space like it has to be frantic it doesn't have to be perfect it has to be unperfect if, if you want to create that so to say it's the 9 and 10 it's, it's a bit it's kind of a way if you're going to play like that you have to expect that it's not going to you have to expect the 9 and 10 not to get the right decision every time because you don't know what's happening around you you're trying to keep eyeing the ball you're trying to still keep looking at the backfield for space and you're you're trying to feel what the defence are doing but then you're trying to look around to see what your players are doing and you don't have that structure so I'd say Garbisi coming back in Alan has done well he's, he's actually stepped up for, for Harlequins this year Um but I still think Garbisi, he's and he's another guy who who can just create magic out of nowhere. I think he did it against Ireland, um, I think two years ago, 
uh, or three years ago in the, like he just has that unbelievable uh, change of pace. He can score try out of nowhere, and he's another he's another threat uh, that Ireland need to to look after because he can score from from anything. So ultimately, what you're saying is, if you know, if Italy want to be playing that way, you just have to take the the rough with the smooth. Yeah, exactly, and 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 that's what Kieran would say is like, we'll we'll try it. If it doesn't work, we'll go again with it. Like, and it's kind of it's kind of a strange way of of, of playing, um, because we're especially as an Irish nation, we're so used to structure, being told exactly what to do. Even like that that uh, Hugo Keenan's try from a from um against France from the kick out. That was all a structured play that it was like we, we love structure, we love knowing what where to be and it, it provides accountability. But Ireland are very good at being creative within that structure. Um but the Italians they they like that craziness. And if the if it works out for them when they do it, they they can as I said earlier, they can they can get that confidence about them and that belief that they can beat anyone. Yeah, in terms of the rest of the coming back to to Ireland, Birch and team will be named tomorrow, so we're expecting Ross Byrne to start. The other couple of selections that have to be made a replacement for Ty Byrne is that just a straight swap of Ian Henderson coming into the starting team, and who are we expecting to step up to the bench? Is it more than likely Ryan Baird? Yeah, obviously, um, it probably will be Ryan Baird, but I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> I would be disappointed to see Gav Coombs come onto the bench as as a lock back row cover. Um, I think Henderson should start. Um, interesting, he's been linked in French papers to Toulouse. Uh, next season, I didn't realize he was he was off Henderson. contract. Ian Henderson been linked to Toulouse, yeah, oh. to replace uh, to replace Reinhard Elstad, who's who's heading back. Um, but I don't know if that's just just agent talk or or Ian Keatley. Um, negotiation tactics coming out, but uh, has anyone uh, seen Ian Henderson's wife? Baby on the way, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I think Coombs look at Ryan Baird, it'd be hard to leave Ryan Baird off because he's been excellent for Leinster as a blindside and uh, obviously covers lock as well. But I'll tell you what, Coombs is putting him putting it up to him uh, in terms of his form, yeah. I'd say, look, we'll find out what way it goes tomorrow, but the. The fear for Gavin Coombs is he's been playing so well, scoring tries for fun and doing the dirtier stuff around the pitch as well, which is probably the feedback he was getting over at, from Andy Farrell over the last few months. But you, you would just wonder maybe are there there are a few enforced changes into the side and that just might go against him where Farrell might be thinking I'm, I might just kind of stick with what I know a little bit more when it comes to the to the squad, Ian. Yeah, exactly. I, I think he's gonna. There's a few obviously enforced uh, changes. Burns out. Obviously, I don't don't think Sexton will play. I can see Aki coming in. I'd say maybe one change to the to the back three. I'd say say one of them will, will miss out just to try and you want to you want to you want to give guys chances, but you still want to keep the core core squad together, the core group. Um, Together, so I'd say, as you kind of said there, there, there might be one front row change, like whether that's that's at hooker or, or maybe giving a Porter Porter a rest, um, just because you do you do want to have one eye on the World Cup, but you still you're you're going for a Grand Slam, you've you're number one in the world, it's it, it's a tough tough place to go, so you want to keep your main core group together. So I'd say there will be. Four, I'd say around five changes to the team, so still keeping ten starters from the last day, which I think that's a that's a good 
ratio to to mix up the team but still keep that consistency and then a few new, new guys on the bench like like Jack Crowley uh, I think he'll come in uh, either yeah Bird or or even Treadwell I think he's he's got a lot of time for Treadwell so he's brought him back in so he you could even see him on the bench as well and plenty of options right around the the pitch as well La- last point on Gavin Coombs before I jump out I'm kind of just playing fantasy rugby in my head here and I'm not saying it's going to happen this week or next week or it might even be something we see until the the next World Cup cycle. But the the thoughts of, for example, like a uh, Kalen Doris at six, Josh Van der Fleer at seven, and Gavin Coombs at at eight, in an Irish back row. I mean, that's it's an incredibly powerful uh, trio. But on on the flip side, then is it maybe a little bit off balance, or like how do, how how would you potentially see that working? Yeah, look, it is very exciting. But I think the balance in the in the back row at the moment with Peter. Mm. Um, Kalen and and Josh Van der Fleer is is working incredibly well. Um, obviously Peter, you know Jackal Tress, uh, attacking defensive line out. Um, uh, he's he, he just complements the two lads perfectly. Who are both more probably prominent ball carriers. Uh, with with Coombs, you get a third, you know, really really strong, powerful ball carrier. Um, but we'd have it have it would take time to settle. I think as well. Um. But certainly, I think coming off the bench, uh, Coombs at the moment could be really exciting against tired defenders. I'm I'm going to shift away from Six Nations now because we've probably got on quite a while. We're running; we've a lot of stuff to to get through. But obviously, France and Scotland—that's on Sunday afternoon as well uh, at Stade de France. But because I, I want to talk about Connacht and Pete Wilkins was confirmed yesterday as getting the the full gig. Uh, it might sound a bit confusing to some, so the the head coach has been promoted to the role of head coach uh, for next season. But ultimately, he's be, he's taking on overall responsibility for the team. So they're kind of morphing that director of rugby and, and head coach job back in together. There are challenges, first, that he's going to have over the next little while. First of all, he has, actually has to put together a coaching team because, as we've seen, Mossy Lawler is leaving and there's a lot of talk to Val Senecal is going to head back to France as well. But before we talk about that and the the challenge he has there. Um, how do you rate the appointment? What do you think it's going to do for Connacht? What? How do you rate Pete Wilkins as a coach? Um, I think it's pretty underwhelming, to be honest. Uh, I think uh, as a as a as a as a as a statement, I think um, it's it's yeah, it's, it's underwhelming, and that's not to say he's not a good coach. But the re- the problem is he's been effectively head coach for two years. Um, you know, obviously he started off as defense coach, but he's effectively been head coach for two years. Um, in charge of attack and defence, and I think, I think it was this was always the plan. I think when we were told Andy Friend was was stepping back a little bit, you know, earlier in the year, I think that was with a view to to give and Pete more control and seeing how they went. Uh, so obviously the board feel that they've gone really well, and 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 this is a this is the right move for them. Um, because if you are going to change coach, this is the time to do it. You know, obviously World Cup cycle. So, and I've obviously they've given him a three-year contract, so they really believe in him. They know him better than I do. Um, but uh, yeah, obviously I, I think his his assistance is going to be key. I mean, it's for me, it's a it's a bad move letting Dewall Senegal go. Um, I'm not saying that uh, they had an over a choice in it because obviously he was highly sought after in France and um he'd be coaching in the top fourteen next year, but. Is that, um, is that a is that a yeah, I think as far as you're aware, he's four or five different clubs um, in top fourteen chasing them. Um, and look at what he's done with that young Connor pack. What himself and Colin Tucker have done is has been really impressive. Um, 
there's a rumor John Muldoon is coming back to be part of the coaching staff. So obviously, um, that'd be a a, a good signing for them. Um, but there also there's also some very good players being let go or moving on. So, um, the recruitment piece is going to be be key. Um, I haven't said that. You know, next year's URC should be easier because of the Welsh. Um, you know, being underfunded, uh, even by even more, but. Yeah, look, I could be wrong on this, but I, I don't. Uh, I just think it's, it's, it's not a big statement. Um, and also you lose a director of rugby, so, um, you know, Wilkins is obviously it's a big ask for him as in his first big role where he's got no support from above, um, to take it on. But as I said Connor, Connor Board know him better than I do, so, um, it could, it could work out, and hope it does. Yeah, and Keith, I imagine when Pete Wilkins went in for this job and wanted this job, he probably hoped and thought he would be able to retain a lot of the, the coaching team around him unfortunately but uh, we've kind of discussed of all Senegal is leaving Mossy Lawler heading down to Munster as well it's the big job for him is putting the right team around himself as well yeah and listen I'm not 100% sure I probably don't want to speak out of turn but I think that's why there was such a delay with the announcement everyone was going what's, what's going on but as you said there like like he probably did want to keep the vault, but then he's got other uh, other offers in France, which probably kind of can't can't match to keep him on. I just said the Cody Tucker's there, Mossy Lawler moving on to Munster, um, Andy Friend. So I say that was that was the reason for the delay. He probably wanted to keep most of his team together, who worked, but all these moving parts. So I say that's why there was probably such a delay with the announcement. And then they said, right, we better announce something because I say all the players are looking for clarity as well as we talk about contracts. You kind of want to know who's who's going to be in charge next year before you sign anything. So I'd say that's why they said, right, let's announce Pete's going to be there to give a bit of clarity to the players. We can go back to players, right? Pete's definitely going to be here. And, and like as I said, it all has a knock-on effect. So that's why they probably wanted to to right, let's announce Pete. He's going to be head coach. We have a bit of stability there. And let's see uh, what coaching staff we get in underneath. But I, I think I think as everyone knows, like if you watch you watch all the other provinces like Leinster and then you watch Munster now, like they're, they've, they've signed um, Mossy Lauder to put another string to their bow. The coaching staff is so important for the team to function and getting, we talked about balance in the back row. You need a nice balance of coaches as well. Um, and I think that's why I, they probably don't want to rush this, this rush getting the, the backroom staff in, in a kind of get Pete Wilkinson in, in to a bit of stability, but they want to make sure that they get the right guys in. Because uh, kind of are kind of during a bit of a transition period as well. Yeah, and Birch, I know, like you said, it's it's probably a bit underwhelming the the overall appointment. But does that stability side of things help a little bit as well when you do have some assistance leaving to be able to have someone either at the top or relatively close to the top who has been there and and who does know the province and the players that well? Yeah, no, look, obviously that was that was factored into it. Um, uh, like I don't know what kind of budgetary constraints Connacht are operating on. You know, did they have the 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 package to go out and you know attract the top talent to to I suppose put up against Peter Pete Wilkins in the interview process and, and then make a decision. I mean, if they didn't, um, and they believe he you know stability is a key part of it. Obviously, he's there a long time, um, and he he's a good coach. It's just from a playing point of view. You know, unless he gets very good assistance, are they really going to get a huge change? You know, is it um and because like when you when you have it, if you're like Leinster, you don't want to change the the, the coaches because it's cohesive, it's stable, it's successful. Uh, I I would argue that Connacht aren't knocking knocking the ball knocking out of the ballpark at the moment, or haven't been for the last couple of years. So 
that's the challenge. So I think his assistants are going to be absolutely key to with new voices, new ideas, fresh impetus. Um, because realistically, they're going to have a lot of the same squad, and I know they're bringing through young players from the academy, and that's brilliant. Um, but as we all know, you know, only some of them will end up being top top end. Um, and you're going to spend twenty games trying to find out if they who is and who isn't. Um, which is which is which is difficult. So you need to have, I suppose, if you're not going to bring in five or six new, you know, new top end players to replace the ones you're losing who are pretty good, like Sadella Hunt, etc. Um, maybe Marmion was supposed to be leaving as well. Um, you know, they've been key players for Connacht in the in the past. So, um, your his assistants are going to be absolutely crucial. And the tricky part for Connacht, and it probably always is that way with them in just the, the size of the province and stuff like that and the size of the organisation is that when they do have coaching changes and if things do go well there's always the fear that you know through through your own good work it's going to end up being a, a short term employment because someone else is going to swoop in like we've seen with Deval Senecal there was a, a huge change in the pretty much the entire backroom coaching ticket there a few years ago and you know it has started to come together a little bit this season and all of a sudden we're seeing obviously Mossy Lawler is leaving. We're seeing Seneca probably leaving. Andy Friend is moving on. That's, you know, if things go right for Connacht when it comes to, to appointments, the, the tricky part is there are always generally bigger teams who are trying to swoop in and take those coaches away. Yeah, this, we, we already kind of discussed there that the budgets with, with Connacht and if you want to keep the top coaches and, and he said there they, they, they put a nice coaching ticket line there uh, Bert said that they did an incredible job with the with the forwards pack which they had but then there's always that and, and for the coaches as well it's always like okay I've done well with Connacht what else is out there is like is there something big, bigger for me and it's kind of Connacht need to lose that that kind of mental uh, that that tag as as a stepping stone if they really want to uh, move on and I think they they're trying to lose it they are trying to develop their own identity they're starting to bring actually true um, talking to Eric Elwood who's in charge of the academy there they're starting to actually bring true a lot more homegrown talent yet they still bring in maybe the 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 odd Leinster player um, who 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 kind of hasn't made it there so. They they are trying to develop their own identity with their own connect connect players, and I think they need could be could be something that they need to think about. It's actually starting bringing through more young connect coaches, the coaches who are going to stay there, like because they had Nigel Carolyn there, who did a great job, and I heard that they were thinking about trying to bring him back. He's obviously gone over to Glasgow, and he he did an incredible incredible job with with uh, connect, and decided he wanted to move on to Glasgow for something new new and. Uh, probably to learn because uh, he was in Connacht for around 20, 20 years I'd say and he wanted to move on but someone like that coming back um, a guy from Connacht who's, who's who's bred and born could be the answer rather than bringing in coaches from abroad who use it as a stepping stone and then move on so that that could be the, the way forward for Connacht Yeah it'll be interesting to see what happens Um, final final point and we'll we'll go through it quickly enough on the, the podcast this week so Manu Tuolangi Picked up a red card at the weekend against Northampton Saints, played for, for Sale Sharks. Got a four-game ban yesterday. So the red card, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it was for running into a carry, leading with the elbow and pushing off and catching Northampton's Tommy Freeman pretty much just, just below the chin there. So he was given a red card, four-game ban, but Birch, it's going to be reduced to three games if he completes the 
the World Rugby Coaching Intervention Programme, which we've obviously been calling Tackle School for a while because it's it's generally only occurred with the with high tackles, you know, a, a, an accidental shoulder to the head. Can you explain to me? And I know the, I do know the exact reasoning because it's you know the coaching intervention is to do with anything related to the the head contact process. But can you explain to me what? a player who's been playing as long as Manu Tiolangi is going to, to learn in this coaching intervention program about running into contact with your elbow pointing up into a into a player's head. Because yeah, yeah. For, for as long as I've been playing the game, that has not been allowed. This isn't something that's been cracked down on in the last couple of years. Yeah, I think this is this is farcical, to be honest. Um, I actually saw I saw some video footage of Andy of Owen Farrell going through the, the, the tackle school and I mean, if you did it with the with the Beckham under sixes, um, uh, you, you're afraid it went viral. You know what I mean? It, it was just absolute. Uh, it was tick a box. Uh, like it was, it was cringe stuff. You know what I mean? Um, and this is this is another joke. You know what I mean? Like I look at I actually think we're doing a good job at the moment. You know, <laughs> the, as a spectacle, of the game um is is entertaining you know and and that hasn't always been the case i i remember back a, f- a few years ago tony ward you know w- was so frustrated with the game that he said oh we should go to 13 because there's no space uh, and they have tinkered with the rules a little bit and we can see games like you know england scotland or you know um uh ireland france obviously and, and be entertained and high ball and play time and etc etc so i'm not anti word be at all i think they're, they're doing their best but this is this tackle school thing as a way of getting a week off, um, is is an absolute farce. Particularly for an incident that's not a tackle. It, it's you know, uh, and it's it's blatant. It's a violent act. It's a highly dangerous act. Um, and to a certain extent, it's premeditated. So, um, yeah, like I'd have more simply for a fella who you know gets stepped and ends up being a little bit high or or can't dip in time, etc. From a tackle because I think that's there's a lot more moving parts in in that. But what Manu did. It should be if it's four weeks, it's four weeks, in my opinion. Um, so yeah, I think this is, and you know what, it's it's actually, from a world rugby point of view, I, I haven't heard anybody kind of defend this tackle school well or properly, uh, because I think we all believe, or the majority of us believe, it's just a, um, it's just a way of actually, uh, you know, reducing bands and keeping, keeping a, a key stakeholder happy, which is the players. Keith, how do you feel about it? Yeah, like if, if they didn't bring in a tackle school, we'd all be going, we'd be talking about like, what are they doing about it? So this is kind of their way of doing it about it. Like, what what can you say to Manu there? Like, okay, Manu, don't, okay, don't lead with your elbow. Like, what what more? Like, they're trying to bring in something that they're, they're showing that they're being proactive about it. Um, like, like dangerous play, like like something like I thought it looked vicious what he tried to do, um, and I think the only way I don't think banning him for four games w- is like, like I don't think it's going to do anything to Manu. It actually, uh, the only way you're going to probably stop violent play like that or someone punching on the pitch is actually hit him where it really hurts, and that's probably like yeah. a fine. Uh, actually, hit hit money because if he if he misses a match, he's probably like right, like I actually have four weeks off like I can train and, and rest up and I, I'm not going get, to get injured or something like that so or just something with, with, with violent play as as we saw there with Mano like it, it looked vicious as I said and I just think if you're going to if you really want to eradicate that you need to I don't think bands are going to do it I think you need to it needs to be more 
more vicious. You don't it doesn't like him him going as we said there at far school going to this rugby school and what Bert said there exactly right. Like like it like what what do you what school is he going to? Okay, now when you're carrying there, Manu, just yeah, drop your elbow, yeah, keep it tucked, and then don't like what what are they going to teach well, you? That, that's exactly what I saw from Farrell. It was like literally a bag coming at him. You know, keep your hands closed, shoulder. Like it was just. At about at about five miles an hour. So, uh, and this this was genuine. This was this was this was actually what he was doing as part of his process. You know. So, and yeah. the what's what I found really really curious as well, and in the the full written judgment of it, like as we said, this was this isn't something that World Rugby have been clamping down on in the last couple of years. Like a fend like that, with the elbow pointing out, that was that was illegal 10, 15 years ago. It's it's not something that they're just you know making a point of now, but. They they made a note in the the full written judgment that they accepted the fact that the player attempted or affected to make a lawful fend, which it's just it's just plainly not true because you know the the arm the, the the hand is closed for a start, so it's not an open handoff. The the you know the the elbow was pointing out away from the body and and actually up into the air, so it was there was at no stage of it was it actually close to being a a lawful fend and. I know we're probably going on a lot about it for something that was in the Premiership, but it, I just found it absolutely farcical at the at the weekend and yesterday in particular when the the judgment came out. I think we need to ask questions: Who's actually on these committees? Like, like it probably should be one of the top referees or who who the referees who are in the game. They think, but then when it comes out, it actually goes to a committee who's probably a. a like Bert, you'd know more who's usually on these committees. Sometimes they're like ex-players from 20 years ago or guys who have just made the way high up the ladder and they're probably out of touch with, with the game. But I, I'm not sure who's actually on them, but maybe you need a, a professional referee who's a current professional rugby who's up to date with the laws. And like anyone can see that that's a, that's a, there's no attempt to keep your your elbow in tight. He leads, and it's actually a vicious little little jerk out to try and actually cause cause hurt to a, an, op, an opposing player, which we're trying to eradicate from the game. Have you been on any of these panels, Birch? Way too way too young uh, and, <laughs> and, and unintelligent enough, <laughs> or not PC enough, not PC enough. No, uh, look at it. I think yeah, it's. They're definitely from a different era, um, and that's not that's no problem with that. Um, but you're seeing some very lenient and inconsistent um, punishments, which which isn't good. And I, I know from speaking to referees, that really frustrates the referees as well because they feel they're not getting the backup, and and, yeah. and they're not sure how it's going to be dealt with. You know, and look, there has to be a way of of I suppose mopping up a mistake. So the Wayne Barnes Antonio one. That can happen in the heat of the uh, heat of the moment for for Wayne Barnes to make that decision, etc. He's in a highly pressurized environment, but when when they get a player who's done something that's dangerous, you know, on a on a Tuesday afterwards, and you have time to deliberate, I, I just think they need to be a bit stronger. All right, we'll put a pin on that conversation for this week, and we'll come back to it again another time. Before we let you go, guys, very quickly, three words, three winners this weekend of the, the three Six Nations games, presuming they all go ahead and are, are played. Who wants to go first? Keats, go. Ireland. I'm going to go with Wales. As as we kind of discussed there, it just could be the crowd behind them. And then I'll go, uh, I'll go France, even though Scotland are doing well. I just think 
wounded France back at home. I think they'll they'll, they'll win. Yeah, I'm, I'm expecting a big reaction from France. I think Dante, if he plays, will make a huge huge difference to them. Um, they apparently trained incredibly hard leading into Ireland, so I think they freshen up a little bit. England for me are going to get better under Bortwick as they play this boring style of rugby. Um, and Ireland against France, yeah, Ireland to win. Very good. Thanks, man, for joining us, fellas. So we have uh, Italy against Ireland, two fifteen kickoff on Saturday afternoon. That's an RT two and RT player, and live radio coverage on RT Radio One. And then on Sunday afternoon, we have live coverage from the Stade de France of France against Scotland, and all your highlights then on Monday night on Against the Head and we'll be back in a week's time on the RT Rugby Podcast so from us thanks a million for watching and listening and we'll speak to you again soon thanks guys